0: Regenerative agriculture saying we actually can improve our resources, improve the environment by how we farm.
1: Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Sustaining with Shana. A show where I will share all the amazing and exciting works of sustainability happening across the the eastern foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, to the lush farmlands of southeastern Pennsylvania. By celebrating our community, we can help to bridge the gap between local and international sustainability endeavors. Today's guest is Diana Martin. Diana is Rodale Institute's Director of Communications and Marketing. Together, we dive into the second part of our conversation, talking about the amazing work that Rodale does, but more importantly, this time we talk about this important groundbreaking white paper that Rodale published back in September of last year, titled Regenerative Agriculture and the Soil Carbon Solution. And we dive in together to talk about how regenerative agriculture can be a part of solving the climate crisis. So tune in to the rest of the episode to learn more about this groundbreaking white paper and also the important research that Rodale is doing right now. But first, hear an update about the podcast and what season two holds and more about possible release dates. Hi friends and listeners, welcome back to another episode of Sustaining with Shayna, and I'm so excited to be back with you on this episode as last time I was with you on an episode was back in December when I released the first part of my series and conversation with Rodale. And a lot of things kind of happened in between that time since then, but I'm glad that I'm back releasing the second half of our conversation and a lot of the work Rodale has done in that time uh, since we last spoke. They've done some amazing things, and I would love to highlight that here on the episode as well. But I do want to mention a couple of things that have been going on in this time because it's been almost about... Five months since I produced an episode so a couple of things that I want to mention right away is Rodale is having their yearly plant sale and this is always a huge event that they have every year over Mother's Day weekend is happening this year so it starts this Thursday to this Saturday and they have a variety of all different kinds of organic Uh, plants and herbs and also vegetables that you can grow and I found such a variety of different kinds of squashes to different kinds of kale to different kinds of tomatoes that are really out there Uh, and I wonder if some of the plants that Rodale sells are some of their own uh, how would you say like their own variety Of uh, or heirlooms that they've cultivated of certain plants. And if you're interested in learning more about Rodale's events, not just the fact that uh, Rodale is having this huge plant sale, they always have events going on uh, right now, whether it's virtual, there's some limited in-person events they're having, but definitely check out uh, their events tab on their website, To learn more about what's going on. But as for here on the podcast, I feel like there's a lot that has been happening behind the scenes. And one of those that I am really excited about still when talking about with others is back in about mid-January, I had the privilege of being interviewed by Sweetest Television and talked about how the new presidential administration was talking about climate change, but also my concerns for uh, not just addressing climate change, but also talking about those energy transition plans and what it means for workers who live in the coal region being a part of having access to those green jobs. And we also talked about a variety of issues. And it was really fascinating to meet um, this nationally known and internationally known uh, Swedish climate reporter that is talking about her perspective from her country and what's going on with COVID and also what's going on with climate change all at the same time. So I posted the interview back in, I believe that was late February, and you can find that uh, full interview in the video tab within my Facebook page. And also in that time, I've done a lot of, I guess you could say, soul searching and trying to figure out what the podcast means, what the podcast entails, and what is the type of content that I want to release to listeners and what kind of content is enriching for me as well. So because of that, I, th- I feel like this season coming up, uh, which will be released soon, will be comprised of three main pillars that I really want to shift my focus on to really mainly talk about those or have a lot of my interviews and discussions or content or events or whatever it may be come back to those three pillars along with the core message of highlighting sustainability here in the community. We're also talking about topics that might not necessarily exist yet in the community. So that being said, a new season is coming. I'm really excited about some of the people that I have lined up for as interviewers and some people that I really admire that are also trailblazers within their fields within sustainability or a field that intersects with sustainability. So in the coming weeks, there'll be more information about what season two holds as far as the content, but also as far as a release date would go. And with that all said... I think it's important to uh, be cognizant of the fact that uh, when talking about sustainability and talking about a podcast about sustainability, especially environmental sustainability, uh, we can't lose focus on the fact as not just creators, but also as people who are consumers of that information to understand that we need emotional and spiritual sustainability, and all different factors that's not just about the environment or about economic sustainability, that one of the things I learned in these last few months is how necessary it is to take a break and how I kind of didn't really plan that break. Uh, My body was just like, it's time to take a break. Um, but in that time, I kind of really begun to understood, or sorry, began to understand why it's important to have some level of, uh, I guess you could say, a level of of boundaries, but also a level of like expectations that certain things are going to be met and certain things aren't, and I feel. Really, uh, really excited about the next season because I think part of that personal conversation I have with myself for these last five months will kind of be shown in bits and pieces throughout the season and especially in addition to the content that is just the regular episodes I would produce that I'm looking forward to. Some of the discussions that will happen uh, in front of the microphone and not behind the microphone this time. Um, but I also wanted to mention that because I think it's really important when connecting with people and I'm trying to find new ways, especially even during COVID, to connect with listeners and connect with people who follow online or whatever is Feedback is really important and I appreciate any feedback there is uh, that you could provide whether you like a particular uh, episode that I talk about or a particular series or something spoke to you on one interview that I had with a certain guest or you loved the guest that I had on and would love to hear more about what they do or what they talk about. Those kinds of things help to build a more enriched, uh, platform and build more enriched content. And as much as this is fulfilling for me personally, it's also a place where I feel like I want to build a community that works for all of us and that supports all of us. So that being said, uh, in addition to feedback, uh, shameless plug here. In addition to that, I appreciate any financial support that anybody could provide to the podcast because a lot of this work I pretty much do on my own. I do everything from editing the website to editing the audio that goes into the podcast. Maybe <laughs> eventually, uh, having an audio engineer could help um, make the content even more fabulous and can probably get rid of some of those ums that I always say half the time but I think it's important in order to get to that point I would appreciate any support that the listenership could provide financially and I'm also looking into ways that in addition to just providing donations that'll there's more interactive ways that uh, listeners who are patrons of the podcast can participate in. But that is coming in season two. So find out more information about that. So next up is the second half of my interview with Diane Martin talking all about regenerative agriculture and their recent White paper they released back in September talking about this and how regenerative agriculture can solve the climate crisis. So stay tuned and enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to another episode of Sustaining with Shana, And a part of the special episode we're having today is part two of speaking with Rodale about a lot of the amazing work that Rodale is doing currently. But this episode, we're trying to focus mainly on the white paper that was recently released uh, about a couple months ago talking about the connections with agriculture and climate change. So um, Diana, can you go over in a little more detail, like just generally what the paper is about? Sure, so right at the end of September, we just released a new
0: white paper called Regenerative Agriculture and the Soil Carbon Solution. So basically the paper is talking about um, the way we farm And how it can either be a a problem that's contributing towards the climate crisis or it could be part of the solution and actually start to mitigate and help reverse climate change. So in our paper we talk about um, in actually in 2019, the United Nations International Panel on Climate Change, they actually identified agriculture activities as responsible for nearly a quarter of our global greenhouse gas emissions, about 24 percent of those emissions. And um, in the paper we talk about how we could um, actually use regenerative and organic agriculture um, to start to sequester some of that carbon, to actually take carbon, which is a greenhouse gas emission, out of the atmosphere and store it back Um, under our feet and our soils, which are actually carbon depleted. So that's kind of the premise of the paper. Some people know that as carbon sequestration, which is kind of a fancy scientific term. Um, So, you know, if you're not familiar with it, we'll talk about what that means today. Um, Some people are calling it carbon farming, but it's basically the idea that we actually could, um, as one potential solution to the climate crisis, to store some of that carbon that's in the atmosphere back in our soils?
1: So I've read a good decent portion of the white paper already. And there's so, when the inter, in the introduction of this most recent white paper, you talk about um, that there was a report that came out through Rodale back in 2014. So how does this uh, latest white paper line up with a similar one that was produced six years ago and uh, what's the relation that they have to the two of them?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So we had previously released a white paper on regenerative and organic agriculture in relation to climate change back in 2014. And for anyone who's not familiar with what a white paper is, a white paper is basically it looks at a vast amount of research that's been done by other scientists, other institutions, and it basically puts out a position um, from what we're seeing from a large number of of studies. So it's different than a peer reviewed publication that maybe looks really closely at one study. It's kind of a broad look at what the current science and data is saying on a topic. And I would say, honestly, that's the biggest change over the last six years is there's just been an explosive amount of science and data that's come out on this issue. Um, when we first released the paper in 2014, it was really an introducing the idea to many people. It was a really novel concept that um, actually through the way we farm, through building soil health, that we can sequester carbon. So I would say back in 2014, we were really introducing the topic to the scientific community and since then uh, a large number of people have decided to study this issue there's just a lot more data Um, you know this paper actually has uh the most recent white paper has 162 citations just to give you an idea of the amount of science and research that's come out and i think um, you know since the last paper not only has there been more research But the farming community is a lot more interested in soil health and regenerative agriculture and i would say these concepts are becoming more mainstream even with the consumer audience thanks to some books that have come out like the soil will save us and even recent documentaries like the kiss the ground film that just came out on netflix
1: yeah and it's interesting to see how much change has happened in the last few years i mean for me personally, I haven't really heard much about regenerative agriculture until probably within the last year, year and a half, and how much headway it's been making. And before kind of going into a little more detail about the findings in the report and talking about carbon sequestration, can we step back a second? And especially for those who may not have listened to part one of our conversation, but can you talk about the difference between what is regenerative agriculture and organic farming? Definitely, so regenerative agriculture uh, is more of a
0: holistic concept. Regenerative agriculture is saying that, you know, not only can we farm without depleting the resources and making the environment worse, Um, we don't even have to uh, just sustain what we're doing and do do the least amount of harm or damage. Regenerative agriculture is saying we actually can improve our resources, improve the environment by how we farm. That um, if we use practices like a good crop rotation and putting compost back on our fields, reducing tillage, you know, grazing animals, basically keeping the soil covered as much of the year as possible with perennials and cover crops and green manures, um, even crop residues. If we do all these things that can build soil health, we can actually improve the environment. We can build soil health, we can sequester carbon, we can grow more nutrient dense food, we can improve the welfare of animals of our rural uh, communities and there's all these kind of positive win-win-wins from regenerative agriculture in the sense that it even can do things like you know reduce erosion and um, help farmers um, be more resilient to droughts and flooding. So that's kind of the concept with regenerative agriculture. Um, regenerative agriculture, it's, you know, we've actually been talking about it at Rodale Institute since the 70s and 80s, but it's really becoming more of a mainstream word recently as more brands are paying attention to it more more farmers Um, but it doesn't have the same kind of strict criteria that organic does. Um, Organic is actually uh, run by the National Organic Program which is under the USDA so organic is actually a term that is um, governed by the federal government and has very very strict criteria for its use. Um, It has uh, rules like you can't use GMOs You are prohibited from using any synthetic inputs like fertilizers, um, pesticides, herbicides. You can't use antibiotics and growth hormones on your livestock. So um, there's really strict rules around organic. You have to be certified by a third party inspector. It takes a three year process to become certified organic. So um, when you see that USDA certified organic seal, there are a lot of rules and regulations that go into that. Whereas regenerative is more of an overarching concept that if we use good farming practices, we can actually improve um, our environment and our communities through how we farm. But there is a little bit more of a danger around regenerative agriculture with greenwashing because it doesn't have that strict criteria that goes with it. So that's one thing to note that if a brand or is, you know, saying that they're doing regenerative practices, you might just need to do a little bit more digging than you have to do with organic.
1: That's a good overview of a difference, especially I feel like I keep hearing stuff in the news about regenerative agriculture, but then again, there's not enough information out there to explain what it is. So half the time it's like, well, what is that? And what is the difference between regenerative and organic farming, which is, I like the way you explain the difference between the two there.
0: Um, And for for anyone who is interested, if if you're passionate about both of those topics, we have been working on a new regenerative organic certification. So I definitely would encourage you to look for that at the marketplace. It's actually a step above the USDA organic seal. And it's a, it's a new label, the Regenerative Organic Certification, that incru- includes pillars for soil health, animal welfare, and farm worker fairness. So when you see that label, you know that every single living thing on that farm from soil mi- microbe, to plant, to animal, to, to the people who plant and harvest those crops have been treated fairly and ethically and with the most consideration.
1: So with that all said, uh, with, so stepping back and talking about the white paper, what are some key findings in this, um, in this paper that you would, I guess, pretty much would tell any person reading it or any consumer or potential farmer that was truly groundbreaking?
0: So the main takeaway of our paper, we basically did a thought experiment and said, um, if we farmed with the best regenerative organic practices on 100% of our farmland globally, on our grazing lands, on our croplands, what what would that look like in the fight against the climate crisis? And what we found is if we converted all global croplands and pastures to regenerative agriculture, we could actually sequester more than 100% of our current annual CO2 emissions. So that's why we're really excited about regenerative and regenerative organic agriculture, because we know it has all these other benefits. It can be profitable for farmers and it can build soil health and grow nutrient dense food. But we found that um, if we shifted all of our farmland to these practices, it could be a major tool in, you know, developing solutions to the climate crisis.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting uh, reading the paper, how many different things that it goes into as far as detail. And even having some basic understanding of organic farming and regenerative agriculture, I had no clue of the possibilities that are out there. So it was... I think it was both informative, but also provided the same uh, level of information too that a research project is. So I think it laid out the information really well for those who um, have never really read a research type paper. So it was very, it was very well, excuse me, well laid out and informative. Um, It's definitely,
0: um, yeah, it's definitely a big resource. So um, for anyone who wants to check out the white paper, I would say if you you wanted to download it, it is available at rodaleinstitute.org slash climate 2020. There's the actual paper itself, which is packed with a lot of science. And if that is intimidating to you, there's also other resources there. So we have a great, um, we have a fact sheet that's just a pretty good overview of the paper. And then we actually have some actionable resources. So if this is something that you're passionate about and you want to get involved, we put a buyer's guide on that URL, which again is slash climate 2020 What to look for if you want to support regenerative and regenerative organic farmers. Um, we have a letter there. You can contact your policymakers. Um, we have a fact sheet that summarizes some of the findings from the papers and we also have some social media graphics. So I just wanted to throw that out there for um, listeners if uh, the actual paper is a little bit uh, beyond what you're, how much research and, and study that you want to do on this topic, know that you know, what we're talking about today is backed by that great data and there's other ways for you to get
1: involved. Yeah, I've actually seen some of those infographics on your Instagram account. Yeah, and you can give us a follow for anyone listening at Rodale Institute. So with all that said, uh, we talked about actually a couple times so far in the conversation, and I think also last week as well, is this idea of carbon sequestration and how that works in with agriculture but what simply is carbon sequestration and how does that work? And then I have another part to that question after that. Okay, sure. So carbon
0: sequestration is basically a scientific term for capturing carbon from the atmosphere and storing it in a medium like soil. Um, and it's, it's really, people are excited about it because it's a critical tool in the fight against climate change. And the basics of how it works are um, that plants, that they can actually, during photosynthesis, they, um, you know, capture CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, a lot of people, I, you know, I kind of urge them to think back to, you probably learned about this in, you know, elementary school or middle school science. Um, and, you know, we, we, you, I think you remember from that that, oh yeah, trees give off oxygen. How do they do that? They take CO2, carbon dioxide, out of the atmosphere. And they actually convert the carbon. They take the carbon part of the CO2. They convert it into sugars. And they actually use the sugars. They they do something called exude, which basically means um, they ooze the sugars out of their roots to Hmm. feed feed the life in the soil. So we talked a little bit in the last episode about how soil is lot there's actually more living things in a teaspoon of healthy soil than there are people on the planet so the soil is filled with bacteria and fungi and actually all these other things nematodes and earthworms Um, and the soil and the plant have what's called a symbiotic relationship which basically means mutually beneficial they help each other so the way that the plant helps the soil is by taking the carbon Converting it into sugars and feeding it to the bacteria and fungi in the soil. And the way that the soil helps the plant is by protecting it from disease and drought, helping deliver it nutrients, um, even storing water for, you know, in the future when it's a drought. So, and the reason, um, you know, we talk a lot in regenerative and organic about healthy soil, and healthy soil can sequester more carbon because if that life isn't there in the soil, if you've killed it off by um, too much tillage and too many herbicides, then that exchange doesn't work. Um, So, and really that's what we're talking about with carbon sequestration, how we can take that carbon and actually store store it deep underground in a stable form in our soils.
1: Yeah, and actually you kind of uh, answered my second part of that where I said, so how does this specifically work with regenerative agriculture? And I think, yeah, it's really important to note that unless if you have healthy soil, you can't sequester carbon effectively. Yeah,
0: one, one way that we release a lot of carbon from the soils back, back into the atmosphere is through excessive Village, which is basically plowing. So when we plow our farmland a lot, that carbon that we, you know, the soil did all this care to store it for us. Um, and then we plowed and we, if it was just, you know, stored in the top part of the soil, then we released it back into the atmosphere. Um, but yeah, with, without healthy soil that's um, achieved with good farming practices, we can't sequester that carbon for long
1: periods of time deep in the soil. So with conventional forms of agriculture, so you talk about um, tilling the soil and overturning the soil too much and how just that's a bad practice in the sense that it's it depletes the nutrients in the soil but then also it's not good for sequestering carbon but stepping back a second what are in addition to that what are some other practices that conventional farming is so toxic for the ecosystem
0: yeah so some of the ways that industrial, chemical, conventional, however you want to call it, agriculture, which is um, unfortunately um, the majority of our agriculture now in the U.S. and we've um, and is sort of gaining ground globally. Um, Some of the reasons why it's so destructive are, you know, in the U.S. we Monocrop is one of our um, challenges. About 50% of what we grow in the United States is just corn and soybeans. And we're often growing those um, in a monocrop, meaning we're only growing um, a very limited rotation, maybe just corn and soybeans. Um, usually those are GMO uh, and they're genetically modified to withstand glyphosate or Roundup, which is an herbicide. Um, and those are crops that really um, you know they really deplete the nutrients in the soil, so especially a crop like corn, which we love to grow in the United States um, that's considered it's called a cash crop, and basically it takes a lot of nutrients out of the out of the soil and I kind of like to compare it to your savings account maybe if you all you ever did was take money out, it's going to be pretty depleted. Um, you have to do something um, in between that crop to put put the money back in or put the nutrients back in. Um, And unfortunately, in a lot of the U.S. where we're just monocropping corn and soybeans and using herbicides, um, we do that by just putting conventional fertilizers back on the field Um, which are made from fossil fuels and petroleum. They're, uh, yeah, very fossil fuel intensive and actually contributing more greenhouse gas emissions um, and, you know, contributing to the climate crisis. So that's sort of what a lot of our industrial agriculture looks like. And the flip side of that, when we think about instead of us thinking, what can we take from the soil and then manufacture to put back on the soil? When When we think about, regenerative and organic we think about how do we build the soil health and let it do its job and really that's working with the life in the soil and to feed the life in the soil you have to keep something um, green and growing on the soil year round so if you um, plant corn in the spring and harvest it in the fall and then you leave that field bare all winter um, the, the soil microbes they have nothing to eat um, that soil exposed to wind and water that's eroding it. It can even get sunburned with just harsh sun on the soils. Um, so it's really important in regenerative agriculture to think about doing something like a cover crop. So after you harvest your crop, putting um, a legume or something that returns nitrogen to the soil, uh, like alfalfa, um, there's you know winter wheat, rye barley there's so many great cover crops that farmers can plant Um, you know having a good crop rotation instead of using those synthetic fertilizers um, we use compost in regenerative agriculture to return life to the soil Um, we don't use synthetic chemicals and, and fertilizers that hurt that hurt that you know microbiome in the soil and i think one of the other interesting takeaways from our paper which may be something we want to talk a little bit more about is the role of livestock in building healthy soil? Um, mm-hmm. you, a- animal agriculture is incredibly sort of demonized in the environmental movement, and I think a lot of that is um, is rightfully so. About ninety-seven percent of our um, our animal products in the United States are factory farmed, and Factory farming, farming animals has a huge environmental footprint, but uh, what, we're, what we found in um, regenerative agriculture where animals have to be outside on pasture, actually grazing, um, in, if, you, if you're appropriately managing that grazing, livestock can actually um, increase the carbon sequestered in the soil that more than offsets their greenhouse gas emissions. So Hmm. what we're finding, um, I like to say, it's not the cow, it's the how. Um, And I I think a little bit to another extent is the how much when it comes to how much meat that we consume. Um, But yeah, we found that really um, animals were always supposed to be part of our system when we talk about farming with nature. Uh, You can look at an example like the Dust Bowl And one of the causes of the Dust Bowl was actually the killing all the bison off the plains that played an important role in the soil health of the Great Plains in the American Midwest. So when we look at animals, we know that they can play a tool by actually being out um, on pasture grazing, you know, they're providing manure that helps fertilize the soil. Um, They're nibbling on grasses, which encourages them to put actually down deep roots, um, which can help sequester carbon. Um, And actually about 70% of our global farmland is in grazing and livestock. Only about 30% is in croplands. Hmm. So if we really want to talk about shifting agriculture globally to become a, a solution to the climate crisis we can't um, neglect the
1: role that animals need to play in that system. That's fascinating. And talking about the difference with that. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, can you go in a little more detail too about the whole aspects of livestock? Because when I think of conventional farming on a personal level, you have Livestock that are crowded into a very small space and then are fed uh, grains that they're not, their body is not meant to digest. So then it just creates this whole cycle of dependency on one crop or another when in the end, it's like so much more money is spent on this unhealthy system to begin with.
0: Yeah, I think you, you hit a lot of important points there. Um, factory farming animals, which uh, some people might, might know as we refer to them as CAFOs, which is a controlled animal feeding operation. And like I said, that's unfortunately about um, how about 97% of our livestock are produced in the United States. And those operations, um, they really, they're all about efficiency. But they really don't make sense when you actually start to unpack how, how they work. Um, basically, we grow in the Midwest a ton of corn and soybeans, and that the corn and soybeans are either turned into ethanol, which is fuel, um, turned into high fructose corn syrup that ends up as processed foods, or are turn into livestock feed. So we grow, you know, we talked about how that's grown, like this GMO corn and soybeans with lots of fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides and all these things we're doing to prop up this system to grow this feed that we often ship halfway across the country to feed animals um, like cattle and feedlots or hogs that are in these controlled animal feeding operations. And, you know, those animals, they are incredibly stressed and they're in very very close um, quarters to one another which can rapidly spread disease. So our ana- these animals are given a lot of antibiotics um, which actually about now 70 percent of antibiotics used globally go to livestock not even to humans um, which is one of the main reasons that humans are having antibiotic resistance because you you're eating antibiotics in your meat products, and then when you're sick and go to use the antibiotic, it's not working. Um, so these animals are really stressed and confined, confined, and they're being, you know, fed this grain that we grew. And then in these systems, uh, you know, animals produce a lot of waste and feces, and we're in a in a normal farm. Um, manure is an important product it's manure is actually fertilizer and it could be used to grow crops and build soil health Um, but in these capo systems that's a waste product because they're not growing any crops besides um, trying to grow these animals as quickly as possible so the manure often ends up in these gigantic lagoons um, which unfortunately um, seep into our water supply. Um, they can overflow, and especially, you know, the place we see a hurricane or something in these manure lagoons, manure washes into our water supply and um, puts a lot of nitrates in our water supply, which can cause illnesses like blue baby syndrome. Um, they're putting antibiotics in our water supply. And then, like, the irony of it all is then we have. We have all this fertilizer that's just a weight, basically a waste product, and then we go and turn petroleum, fossil fuels, into fertilizer to then put back on those fields in the Midwest. So that's sort of how broken our industrial agriculture system is. All it, we think so much about efficiency that we've separated all the components in a way that are just destructive and don't make sense. So. Um, yeah, that's our goal with, you know, regenerative and organic agriculture is not to just compartmentalize all these different aspects, but to think about them really holistically and as one system and to farm with nature and, you know, having, um, in regenerative agriculture, when we say animals are outdoors, so they're outside, they're on pasture, they're not getting growth, um, hormones, they're not getting antibiotics, but it's really important for animals that are outside that you're doing some type of managed grazing, like rotational grazing, you have to move the animals. So we, um, you know, we put animals on a small plot of land that they can graze for let's say a day or two and then we move them. So that gives the chance for that pasture to recover. And that's a really important part of building soil health. Just letting animals like nonstop on a piece of land can be really destructive. But if you move them and give the land a chance to recover, then the soil there benefits from um, you know, the, the manure from those animals, from their hooves, trampling it a little bit um, helps, actually helps the soil. From them nibbling on all the different plants, it encourages growth. Um, and actually a big part of our paper, we talk about biodiversity above, above ground contributes to biodiversity below ground. And we really need both when it comes to sequestering carbon and using farming as a solution to the climate crisis. So the bigger diversity of plants and animals we can have growing creates the biggest diversity of life in the soil. And I think those two things work
1: in harmony. Hmm. That's all interesting that you're you're mentioning. And as I was hearing you talk about the differences and really important and groundbreaking work in the process. I could also see somebody who is used to conventional farming or um, works in that industry. How could, with this research, could an argument be made in the sense of saying, uh, I could just see someone uh, asking the question, well, We have such a demand in this country for livestock and for meat that's produced out of that. How is it possible to transition to regenerative agriculture and still produce meat at a level of scale that industrial farming does?
0: Yeah, that's a great
1: question. I I sort of
0: use the mantra I think for most Americans, less meat, better meat would be a good philosophy that, yeah, we might not be able to eat meat every meal, but that helps you reprioritize your budgeting so that when you do eat meat, you can eat meat that's organic, that's pasture raised because that's the meat we really need to improve both you know the environmental impact of how that meat is raised. but I think um, you know even the some of the broader ethical issues around our food system, the welfare of those animals, and ultimately um, really the the true cost of food to support the farmers and the rural communities. So yeah, I think it is going to be a different system where, you're not gonna get a Thanksgiving turkey that is, you know, 50 cents a pound um, if it's pasture raised. But I think ultimately I think we're gonna to have to move towards a less meat, better meat model. And I think ultimately, if we move to more pastured livestock, we also wouldn't have to dedicate all those acres to growing feed for the livestock. So I think some of it is just rethinking the whole system
1: hmm and I think that's gonna take I think that's gonna take time for people to shift to that new paradigm because I think we've lived in this society that and a naturopath told me recently about this that we are overfed but malnourished because the food that we eat has been so depleted of its natural. Uh, nutrients, whether that's because of soil health or because of the fact that the meat we eat uh, is being overproduced and the animals are not being fed the right nutrients themselves. But it just makes me think of the fact that what if we stopped overconsuming in the first place to begin with? And it just when I think about even how meat is produced for fast food corporations in this country and the quality of the meat there as well is it's it's not about the quality, it's not about the health of what's being produced. It's as quickly and as possible, uh, as possibly as fast as you can And also the volume in which. So I think it's going to take all different sectors of our society to change and understand that it's okay if you don't eat meat. And I mean, I can then also see some people making the argument that it's like live a 90% vegan lifestyle and then just here and there incorporate meat into your diet. Yeah, we, uh,
0: the term we use is hidden hunger. When you mentioned that people are getting, uh, you know, in a, a vast majority of the developed world, people are getting enough calories, but they're essentially starving for nutrients because the food they're eating is not nutrient dense. And it's, it is pretty scary to know, even if you, it's, it's not unique to people who are just eating fast food or processed foods either. Um, you know, if you eat a tomato today, it's significantly less nutrient dense than it was 50 years ago. So yeah, these are some things we're tackling with our research that we do at Rodale and ultimately the shift that we want to see that we truly feel that regenerative and organic agriculture can heal both people and the planet. Actually, our our motto is healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. So there's a big element of, of, of this that is really about human health as much as it is about the environment.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So with all of that said, because uh, we were talking about conventional farming there um, and the toxicity of it, I did want to bring it back to regenerative agriculture for a second. And if you could simply sum it up uh, for those that are still trying to understand the concept of the two, What would you say as one thing about conventional farming that's so toxic and one thing that regenerative agriculture could be used to either counteract that or improve the health of the soil and also the health of the plants and the livestock? I would say the challenge with conventional
0: agriculture is the only focus is yields. And that's a system that's been driven by really consumers just demanding the cheapest food possible. All we care about in conventional chemical agriculture is producing as many bushels to the acre of something as possible so that it can be the, you know, the cheapest food possible at the grocery store checkout. And I would say that's where regenerative agriculture and, you know, regenerative organic and organic, these sort of alternative food systems. um, That's the main difference where it's not just about producing the cheapest, the cheapest food possible. It's about thinking holistically farming with nature and producing food that actually is good for people and the planet, um, including the farmers and, and the animals and the soil. It's more of that, triple bottom line approach, right? People, planet, profit. Um, And yeah, I I would say that's, it's really sort of the mentality and the, the outlook. And I think for consumers, I think we need to go to the marketplace and demand with our dollars, not just the cheapest food possible, but you know, food that's good for our health, food that tastes good, food that's good for our planet, and actually consider the living things um, actually stop and consider like where this food was produced and how are the farmers that are treated? How are the animals that are treated? And I think, you know, everyone has the opportunity to eat three times a day. And I think if we did that more consciously and we asked more questions, I think everyone would start to shift some of their behavior. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there was a point that you talked about trying to get the cheapest produce uh, at the grocery store as much as possible and I do want to step back and just talk about that point but also the point you said with regenerative agriculture where it's looking to see if the farmer is being taken care of and is fully supportive but what about the everyday consumer that even today right now might not be able to afford organic produce at the grocery store or may be able to put a meal on the table every day. I mean, I think it's important that we transition to more of this regenerative agriculture approach but how is it going to possibly be made cost-effective for those consumers who can't even afford organic farming at the uh, at the moment?
0: Yeah, that's fine. And you know, I passionately believe that organic food is a human right and should be accessible and affordable to everyone. And it shouldn't be elitist. We all deserve healthy food. And you know, a few tips on ways to make this work at home would be to grow your own food if possible. Um, I hear that I just see the most inspiring stories of people who, you know, have a little garden. But people who are growing food on rooftops, in parking lots, on windowsills. So you know, definitely try growing food at home. Um, If you if it's available to you, look for um, the ugly produce section. A lot of um, grocery stores or even online grocery delivery services. Are taking that model where they're sort of like this misfit, ugly produce, and it's sold at a sold at a reduced price. Um, there's nothing wrong with that food. Actually, the consumer demand for perfect food is actually one of the reasons why we use so many chemicals in agriculture. So embrace the ugly produce. Um, if you can join a CSA, that's always something I recommend to people. You can get um, sign up for a weekly share of Organic produce from a farm, usually at a greatly reduced cost compared to what you get it to at the, um, at the grocery store. And a CSA is great because the food is local and you can get to know your local farmer. I think some of those are, are great options. Um, you know, trade with your neighbors. Uh, sorry, I have to take a sip of water. I swallowed a fly. <laughs> um, yeah, trade with your neighbors. Maybe you grow something and they grow something else, and you can share the bounty. Um, I think there's a lot of ways that really people are getting creative so that they can eat healthier on a, a smaller budget. One of the things is what we talked about: less meat, better meat. Maybe reprioritize your grocery budget and you buy more fresh produce. Then you know it's a lot less expensive than some of the meat and the animal products. So. Those are some uh, tips, but I would say really, we need to come at this from a systemic level. It's not fair to put it on the people who are trying to stretch their grocery budget to figure out how to make this work. I think we have to understand that that conventional, that cheap food you buy at the grocery store is artificially cheap. And a lot of our tax dollars are going into making that food cheap. And, you know, we're paying those farmers farm subsidies, crop insurance to grow that this monocrop GMO corn and soybeans. And I'd love to see our government totally rethink agriculture and incentivize people to grow local food, healthy food, affordable food, to actually grow food for their local communities, not just ethanol and livestock feed. And, um, create cheap processed foods. So, I think there's so much we have to do from a systemic level and you know, we need to keep in mind that we're paying the least amount for food that we have since the 1960s and the most for healthcare and those things are totally related and how can we be more holistic as a society and more preventative and think about how we can get healthy food in the hands of people instead of treating them later for heart disease and obesity and diabetes and all of these expensive diseases and not expensive just in the terms of dollars and people's quality of life. So I would love to see um, our institutions like schools serve organic lunches to everyone who's free on reduced lunch. I would love to see um, families on federal food assistance like SNAP maybe, you know, have their food go further towards organic and healthy Those dollars go further towards organic and healthy produce. Uh, I think there's so many ways that we could think about getting organic food to the most vulnerable
1: people in our country, and I think a lot of that's going to start with policy. So a follow-up to that, has Rodale helped uh, to lobby any legislation that would help in this department, Yeah,
0: we are, Rodale Institute, we sponsor an organization called Organic Farmers Association that's focused 100% on policy for organic farmers in D.C. Um, Definitely check them out. You can actually uh, support them with a membership if that's something that you're passionate about. But yeah, I think that one thing that we'll be excited about as far as thinking about leg- legislation for the climate crisis is we do need to identify healthy soil as a, as a potential solution. Um, you know it's not a silver bullet. it's not like we can we can't just keep using fossil fuels and um, just continuing deforestation and all these other things that are contributing to climate change. We still need to look at transfer- transportation other sectors but I think that there's a growing awareness of legislators, who are starting to learn about carbon sequestration and the role that healthy soil can play in um, you know, combating and mitigating and starting to reverse the climate crisis. And I definitely would, I think it's an, act, an area of hope for legislators because it can help us achieve these other goals. We need to support farmers in our country. We need to support our rural communities. So how can we reward them for doing this really important ecosystem service and how can we help them and incentivize them? So I think um, one great piece of, uh, Shelly Pingree, who's a Senator from Maine, just got reelected. She has a great bill um, right now that's proposed. That's called the uh, Agriculture Resilience Act that talks a lot about soil health. I would encourage people to check that out and maybe encourage their local legislators to support it. Um, Every four years we pass the most important piece of legislation in agriculture, which is called the Farm Bill. That'll be coming up again in 2022. And I would love to see just a revolutionary, visionary Farm Bill this year that doesn't just maintain the status quo, that doesn't just give subsidies to the corn and soybean growers, um, you know they have powerful lobbyists at the table. The agricultural chemical companies have powerful lobbyists at the table, and I would love to us to think about how can we fund organic agriculture research. How can we, um, you know, help farmers transition to regenerative organic practices, and really make that a cornerstone of the farm bill because there's a lot of the farm bill is a really powerful piece of legislation.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think a lot of the support, too, that goes out to those communities in the earlier point is in the Farm Bill. There's so many different things that I think we don't realize are a part of the Farm Bill. Um, and do, even those,
0: um, those food programs I mentioned, like um, SNAP benefits, the federal food assistance dollars, that's all under the Farm Bill. So I think, you know, what, what a beautiful way to encourage farmers to transition to organic if we could get more organic food to the most vulnerable families in that bill and provide a market for organic farmers. So I think that's a way we can marry um, the needs of our farmers and the needs of our most
1: vulnerable families. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because it seems like sometimes the most vulnerable communities are the farmers themselves too. <laughs> yeah, there's... um it's
0: conventional agriculture has not benefited our farming communities. And, you know, our farming communities are actually pretty decimated right now. And we're losing family farms at alarming rates. Our farming population's aging. Farmer suicide rates are really high in our country. And it's just really hard to make a profit in conventional agriculture when you're doling out all of this money for these inputs for the pesticides for the herbicides for the fertilizers for the seed and then you're you're selling a commodity crop onto a market that doesn't really value it and just wants it to be cheap. Um, so a lot of we're at the point in this country where mo- almost every farmer in America would be losing money if it weren't for um, those federal crop subsidies to the point that most farmers 50 cents of every dollar they make is coming right from the federal government. So I think, why are we incentivizing farmers with our tax dollars to do things that hurt the environment and that hurt our health? Why can't we turn that around and incentivize farmers to actually grow healthy, nutritious food for our local communities that supports the climate, the environment, our local economies, the farmer, and ultimately our families? Yeah.
1: I think that's a perfect way to sum up that thought. Is there anything else that you would like to sum up about this white paper and regenerative agriculture? I would say for anyone, again, who
0: wants to check it out, the paper is available at rodaleinstitute.org slash climate2020. There's some great, um, there's an action toolkit that can allow you to share on social media or contact your local policymaker even a guide, uh, if you want to support more regenerative farmers, how to do that. So definitely check out those resources. And I would just conclude that by saying, it's a message of hope. It's not all doom and gloom when it comes to the climate crisis. We do have solutions that are a win, you know, win, win, win climate solutions that are better for everyone. It's not always about giving something up. I think Regenerative agriculture is one of those things where it really can benefit everyone and put us a step in the right direction. So, I encourage anyone who needs some hope around the topic of climate crisis to really learn more about the power of regenerative agriculture to start mitigating our the climate crisis.
1: Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to sum it up. And it's interesting to see all the work that. Rodale has been doing over these last few years especially with research Um, but before signing off is there anything that you would love to just sum up and bring home for the listeners as far as the conversation that we've been having today but not not just today but also that we had last week as well Yeah, I would, I know that you have a lot of listeners who are actually
0: somewhat local to the Rodale Institute. We're headquartered in Kutztown. And I think, you know, it's funny because we have people who travel all over the world to come to Rodale. We have people come from Australia. Um, And then we have so many people in our region who actually don't even know about us or tell me, oh, I've driven past the sign on 222. So Um, I just want people to know that there, we have a lot of resources and there are ways for you to get involved. Um, You know, check out our website, sign up for our email list, come out to one of our events or workshops. We host film screenings and yoga and cooking demonstrations and all kinds of fun things for the whole family. And, you know, our farm is open to the public. So you can come, we have a visitor center and a store, we have a free walking tour and audio tour. So you know, you could even come out and volunteer for a day. So I just wanna encourage anyone who's listening, I just, um, you know, pe- people are really removed from their food system. We're more removed than ever. I think, you know, a lot of people think that food comes from the grocery store. And I think it's important to get out on a real farm and connect with soil and see how food is grown and meet a farmer. So I would encourage you to find some way to do that in your life, because I think that really just, it shifts your understanding of something that you maybe even take for granted, that you just eat every day, or you think about food as in terms of calories or a diet, um, but food relates to everything in our life, our economy, the environment, our health, our communities. So I just encourage everyone either to, you know, use Rhode Island Street as a resource, um, or visit a local farm or farmer near you and just think twice about the next meal you put in your mouth and where it came from and really the impact it's having on the world around
1: you. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to sum it up. So thanks Diana so much for coming on the show and Talking about all these different things and it's just it's been a lively discussion and look forward to more conversations in the future. Thank you so
0: much for having me. And anyone who wants to get more involved, just uh, visit us at Rodale or on social media at Rodale Institute.
1: Perfect. Well, thanks so much, and thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Sustaining with Shana. Thanks for listening to another episode of Sustaining with Shana. You can now listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor.fm, and many other platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and of course leave a review or comment. To follow us on Facebook or Instagram, go to sustainingwithshana.com. Also, What you read and listen to here on the platform was carefully created and curated content made just for you, the listeners. Any generous donations can help to keep me supplying you with great content. Just go to Sustaining with Shaina's website. Click on the donate page to donate. Glad you're here. Thanks a million for listening.